So we are continuing our series looking at the life of three different prophets, all interconnected, Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist. So let's, let's find out what happens to John the Baptist, shall we? Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of, the, of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John has been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and asked Herod, uh, and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. They went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I know. It's a little weird to say thanks be to God after that one, isn't it? I want to talk about that for a minute. You know, is this a tragedy? What, what are we to do with this, with, with this, with this passage? At, at first glance, this is a tragedy. John the Baptist, killed by Herod, Tetrarch, placed there by Caesar, doing his thing, maintaining peace and order in Rome. It's, it reads like a tragedy. I want to I'm just going to be upfront with you. I'm going to push against the idea that this story is tragic. In one sense, yes. It, there's a decapitation. Can't get around the fact that, yes, decapitations, generally speaking, are not good endings to stories. But I want to lean into a little bit about how important it is in our lives to have something that we would actually die for. That without having something that we would be willing to give our whole life to, then we don't really have anything to live for that's bigger than, well, than comfort. That's part of what we bump against in this passage is, is that sense of happy stories don't end in decapitations. Good stories don't end in decapitations. Um, so G, here's John the Baptist. He is as Krista. Thank you again, Krista, for your great message on Sunday. I was uh, not here on Sunday. I had to listen to the podcast, which was briefly made available. It'll be made available again. But it was uh, really uh, an encouraging uh, and thoughtful and very from your heart. It really, really, she did great. I mean, yeah, it was great, uh, Krista. Um, and one of the, uh, in there, we saw last week John the Baptist in arrest, uh, under arrest, waiting to hear and decide his fate, waking up each morning thinking, is this the day? Is this the day where Herod finally decides and, and ends my life? And what John, what Jesus said about John that we heard last week was, John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets. But the least in God's kingdom will be greater than him. That's kind of a mysterious, cryptic thing to say. That here's the greatest of all the prophets, but somebody like you and me will be greater because of, well, because of what? Um, you know, we have in there that Jesus is referring to the life after the resurrection. That, that while Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist had great roles in, in preparing the way, 
It was Jesus who came and sent the helper to us, sent us the Holy Spirit. And so that um, the great things that are available to us um, can, be, can be accomplished. So let me ask you this way, because I really like the, I, I, I've been really sitting in the ten, tension this week of, is this a tragedy uh, or is this a story marked by courage, faithfulness, perseverance? Who would you rather be in the story? Would you rather be John the Baptist, died a heroic death, or Herod, lived in comfort, did what he wanted, took what he wanted? Um, you know, I, in general, it's better to choose the person that kept his head on, his body. Uh, but uh, if you don't, like I said, uh, he was faithful to the end. Now, John the Baptist had been arrested. He, uh, Krista got into this last week as well, but he was publicly pointing out that Herod had taken his brother's wife. Uh, he had been married for 15 years. His first marriage was primarily about consolidating power. There was a tribal uh, uniting uh, two different power groups, marrying the daughter of King Aretas IV of Nabatea, which you can tell by my pronunciation aren't places or people I'm familiar with. Uh, but I am familiar with the games of, of power and the ways that marriages can be seen as joining families together from a political point of view, but not necessarily because these two young kids fell in love and, and just had to get married, um, which is not an excuse to divorce your wife of 15 years. But when Herod went up to visit his Rome and his, his brother in, in Rome and met Herodias, his, uh, his brother's wife, they quickly fell in love. She demanded that he divorce his current wife. That set the king to 10 years later. Uh, eight years later, come and, and conquer his armies. And, you know, it doesn't go, if, if you're worried, things don't go great for Herod at the end. In, in the end, he dies the death of a coward. He loses the power he'd been carefully consolidating. Um, he was impulsive, cowardly, and, and died a coward's death. So if you look through the lens of circumstances, this is a tragedy. But if you look through the lens of faithfulness, courage, fidelity to God, integrity, obeying God's law, seeking to be faithful to him, then this story is actually a triumph. This is somebody who was faithful amidst persecution, amidst speaking truth to power, the bullying, the threats, the, the critics that came his way all, all through his life, finally coming with Herod to kill him. If you have a life that is primarily about Comfort, joy, well, comfort, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, so let's take that one out of there. If your life is primarily about your own comfort and happiness, this story is a tragedy. I was thinking about the stories we like to tell. The uh, Little Mermaid, you know? Little Mermaid, I believe, was a German fairy tale, and if you ever read a German fairy tale, they end with decapitations like we just heard. Like, there often are, you know, Hansel and Gretel and the witch that wants to eat the children's bones. Like, that's a German fairy tale. And, uh, and, and I know that The Little Mermaid is a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, and I'm certain that that fairy tale did not have the Disney ending where a teenage girl can defy her father, go to a witch, put the kingdom at risk, get legs, and walk. And then in the end, what happens? 
dad is the best man at the wedding. You know, it's like it ends this, it's kind of like the, the Taylor Swift song about uh, Romeo and Juliet, where it's, oh, marry me, like in that, in, that, in that pop song. Granted, it's a pop song, but it tells a story. And the story of a girl who rebels and daddy doesn't understand. I'm going to marry my Romeo. And, and what happens at the end? Daddy's there on the altar too and everything comes together. Or there's a man with a particular set of skills. His wife, his, his daughter is kidnapped. And do you, do you know how many people he kills and taken? 31 people. So there's a story of uh, a dad who kills 31 people to rescue his daughter. You know, and that, I, we just got to say that that's kind of a, like a, a masculine fairy tale where you can have that kind of violence and Thanksgiving's not weird. Or you can get out of your head the, the, all, the, all the people your dad killed to rescue you. you know, it, this is a story that, that's grounded in reality. And we're so attuned to stories that end with the things we want and the good guy winning and, and that we're, we're seriously thrown off when things don't quite go our way. Um, it's, it's hard when we're imprinted on, and, and that's part of what Krista was talking about last week. Um, I'm in jail. I've been faithful. Are you actually the Messiah? You know, when I told my friends, I'm going to preach this passage, a couple of people asked, what do you, what's the text for Sunday? You know, it's like, oh, it's the decapitation of John the Baptist. And they say, well, how are you going to preach that? I was like, we'll see. But then, of course, <laughs> the confidence, the arrogance at times of... Uh, of the, well, of John McDonald, to sit there and think, like, how am I going to pe- preach this passage? What is the point of a, a passage like this? Why is it so hard to preach? Why, why do you think this sermon's hard to preach? Why is it hard to hear? Why is it hard to think, what am I supposed to take away from a passage like this? Well, it, there's some obvious reasons. You know, it's a dark story. It does, to be fair, end in a decapitation. It's about power. It's about lust. It's about violence. Herod's stepdaughter who is a child does a provocative dance and Herod's so aroused he's like what do you want I'll give you anything you want I'll, I'll have my kingdom it's yours and she goes and consults his her her mother is like I did have my eye on a pony uh, you know maybe a little vacation spot in the Mediterranean and she says no actually I want you to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter bring me his head this prophet who has been sitting in a cell after publicly calling out Herod for what he was, perverse, not a man of God, not the true king of Israel, not a man who has any interest at all in the things of God and the people of God. I mean, it's sure he called out the marriage, but he's calling out the whole system. He's calling out that this is just an example of someone who is interested in power, obeying his lusts. That's, that's what's so fascinating and, and darkly ironic about this passage is he called him out for his lust and his claim for power, and that's what eventually, in that final moment, that's what got him killed, was his lust and, and his wanting to uh, preserve his, his sense of power and, and the vow he had made publicly to others. You know, this is, so he'd been calling him out, calling out the system, not just saying your divorce is bad, but saying everything about you is corrupt. And he, you disregard the rules because you think you're above them, which is what power, people in power, that's, what, that's what's so corrosive about power is you begin to think, well, that applies to them, but not so much me. Um, and so he names John the Baptist, names the power, points it out, does what prophets always do, which is speak truth to power, speak on behalf of God. And power does to John the Baptist what power always does to the prophets, seeks to silence and 
to crush. And, and we know that Herod wanted to kill John but feared the people. What does that mean? Well, if you let him go and let him preach and speak and speak out against you, well, then he's just sowing the seeds for an inevitable conflict, that that kind of talk leads, grows, spreads, and then pretty soon John the Baptist has a revolt on his hands. But if he kills him, he knows that's even worse. I just made a martyr. That makes these, these things escalate faster. He knows that his boss is an emperor, Emperor Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and he knows he's evaluated. Here's his annual performance review. Number one, were there any major disturbances of the peace under your watch? No? Good. Did you bring in more tax revenue than the year before? Yeah? Boom. Good. So what are the two things at risk with John the Baptist? One is a disruption of the peace, a, a, anything from uh, what was already happening, which was relatively peaceful, to uh, an insurrection that needs to be put down with the sword. And two, why are you paying taxes to that guy? You know, at least his dad built stuff. This, this Herod, you know, what's he doing with your taxes? He's, he's drunk, he marries who he wants, he does what he wants, he throws these extravagant banquets. Everything is under threat, and he doesn't know what to do because he is a leader that doesn't have any governing principle beyond what's expedient and serves him best. And this is a trap. If I kill him, he's a martyr, people are going to revolt. If I let him go, he's going to keep preaching, people are going to revolt, so I'm just going to hold on to him until finally he makes a decision, uh, pressured um, to, to, to kill him and decapitate him. So let me say again what I've said before. If you don't have anything worth dying for, if you don't have anything bigger than you to guide and shape your life, the sense that you are part of something larger than yourself, then what do we have to live for? I, a few years ago, I took Ford and Winnie to the Living Desert Zoo. And Penn, he was there too, sorry. Uh, yeah, shout out my guy, Penn. And, um, and as we were there, we uh, found, we went to the enclosure of the wolves. It was a wolf habitat. And there were four wolves and in the habitat, and they were walking in an endless circle. And so Ford said, Dad, why are they walking in a circle? Why are they doing that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know why they're doing that. Let me do what any good dad would do and go home and Google it. Um, and so I did Google it. It's called zucosis. This is behind me are uh, a few examples of zucosis. It's when animals that are designed to live in the wild are held in captivity. They develop a psychosis, uh, which they call a zucosis. Really, really good name, zoologist. It's really clever uh, to come up with that. Um, and it's, this, it's when you see different behaviors, especially in, in um, the kind of apex-type animals, uh, intelligent animals, that is repetitive, over and over again behavior on, on a loop. Wolves walking in a circle. Now, I've never seen a wolf in the wild, but I know they don't just walk in circles. They don't just do laps around a certain part of the wood, that this is a behavior that is only found, only seen in captivity. And there's something haunting about it. There's something in that moment that my, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, in fact, I'm going to do this after the service. Ask them, do you remember when we saw the wolves at the living desert? What were they doing? They remember that. There's something about that behavior that, that is, is rememberable. 
Um, nobody really understands it, what they're doing. There's different theories about it, but, um, you know, there's not a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy for animals right now, so we just have to kind of speculate what that could be. Um, so let's speculate for a moment. Why do you think that is? If the primary instinct of an animal is survival, then zoos are the perfect place for them because there's no predators, food is guaranteed every day, and there are the best healthcare available to them. They get any illness, it's going to be spotted, diagnosed, and they're going to be cared for. They're not going to have rotting teeth. They're not going to have starvation as a drought comes over Savannah. That every single need they could ever have are met. There's no danger. There's plenty of food. And they're cared for. Why do we see that kind of behavior? What are they missing? What are we missing? Why does so much of life feel like that? Like we're walking around in circles, waking up, doing something by route every day, and then going back to bed the next day. You know, at the beginning of the series, when we met Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist, there are three incidents in each of these men's lives. The first one with Elijah was when, after the, the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, he's done, he tries to quit, he goes up to God to, to have it out with him, and what he says to him is essentially, I am all alone and nothing's changing. Nobody's with me, and every day it's the same pattern of hiding, of announcing, of preaching to nobody to listen. I'm done, I quit. What was the message God gave Elijah in that moment up on the mountaintop? One, brother, you're not alone. In fact, there are thousands of Israelites who have not bowed the knee to Baal or Asherah. And two, I've already called. I've got people for you to anoint. Things are changing. You're not alone. And things are under control. I'm sorry that it's not on your timeline, but I don't remember asking you before I put this plan into motion. Um, Elijah, that also steals a little bit from October 1st when we study the, the life of Job. But still, same idea. I didn't consult you, and you didn't ask me what was going on. Maybe your crisis is because you think you're all alone when you're not, and you think, think aren't, things aren't changing when they are. Then you have Elisha. Uh, what strikes out to me, kind of the, the image that carries over from that teaching block, is when Elisha is surrounded by enemies who want to take him, kidnap him, uh, the king uh, has heard that he has the power to hear what's whispered in bedrooms, and it's like, that gives me a huge tactical advantage. Go get this guy, because either... We take him off the board and we can continue to just run into Israel and do what we want, or even better, we can use that insight to a huge tactical military advantage. Um, so they come, he's surrounded, his, his, his servant is freaking out, we're going to die. How are you so calm? And Elisha prays that the eyes of the servant might be open, and what did he see? He saw completely surrounded by the chariots of fire, angelic armies around him. And Elijah essentially saying to his servant, we're not alone. God's got this. Don't worry. And then last week, with John the Baptist, all, he's in prison. He's the most like the animals that we just saw on the video screen, in jail, in a dungeon for months, probably a couple years that he's been down there. And he's, what's he say? Are you the Messiah? Of course, after all these years of captivity, of course he's like, 
is this actually real? Is this going to happen? I'm tired of waiting. This is really hard to, to wake up every day in, in, in jail thinking, is this the day that he kills me? And what does Jesus say to John the Baptist? John, tell him, quoting from Isaiah, that you're not alone. Things are changing. Now, think about a time when you just didn't want to get out of bed. And maybe, if we're honest, a time you, you almost couldn't get out of bed. And maybe that idea, that, that image of those animals pacing around is like, you know, I kind of feel like that. And I wonder if those animals just wake up in captivity and think, what's the point of all this? I'm just going to stay in bed in here. Um, and um, think about a time when you, if you're like me, and, and for me, there's, there's many mornings I wake up in the morning thinking, I don't want to get out of bed and face everything that is in front of me today. When you're in that state, there are two things in your head. I'm all alone. Nothing's actually changing. And if I've learned anything from this, this passage in, in this series going through Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist, it's this. We are not alone, and God is working all things for good. We may not see it. It may not be in our timeline. There may be times when things end seemingly tragically. But again, is it a tragedy? Is death the end? Does death have the final word? Is that where John the Baptist's story ends? Is in that tragedy? Or can we look forward at the things that, that God is doing in and through our lives? You know, the, the thing that Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist had in common, other than sharing the mantle of Elijah as the prophet, is none of them got to see the full and complete work of Jesus Christ. And none of them got to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. That's why Jesus says, when the least in my kingdom is still greater than Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist and the great prophets, because they know and see the full and complete work, we have a hope that they anticipated and pointed towards. They never got to see the resurrection they never got to see firsthand Jesus defeat death so that we can know there's nothing to be afraid of because if we don't fear death, there's nothing we ever need to fear. All they believed and never got to see. And we get to see and know that we are not alone. And whatever it is you're facing, God is working for good. Now I want us to hear this, this message from this, this series that we did this summer, that you are not alone. Things will get better. We are the people of the resurrection. We're not even death is permanent. Not even death is a thing to be feared anymore. It is not the end of the story, just as it was not the end of John the Baptist's story, that even in the end, his story is marked by faithfulness, courage, long-suffering. We are not alone, and God will make all things well. We can hold on with faith. So let's come to the table this morning as, as we come on the other side of the resurrection and know that if God can work the resurrection of his one and only son for good, there's nothing in our lives that God can't redeem. And if Jesus can be faithful all the way to the end and calls us likewise to follow him, so too may we be found faithful. So come to the table that Christ has set before you. Know that you are not alone. And whatever situation 
you are in. Know that God is working it for good. And also know that part of not being alone is, well, look around you. At one of the many family gatherings around the world of those who are faithful to Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, I pray particularly for those um, who feel all alone and those who feel despair, that things won't really change. Lord, I pray that you would draw near, particularly to them, that they would know that, that you see them and that there are many of us who are suffering and look, looking to be faithful to you, that they are not alone, that we are not alone, that you've given of us each other. And may we know, especially when we are prone to despair, may we believe that you are working all things for good. May we be faithful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come to the table.